The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Francis Watch on member-supported Restoration Radio. My name is Dan Fitton, your host, and today I'm joined by His Excellency, Rector of Most Holy Trinity, Bishop Donald Sanborn, and Reverend Father Anthony Chicada of St. Gertrude the Great. Welcome, my Lord and Father. Thank you. Once again, a pleasure to be here. Now, before our listeners start to worry that Stephen has developed a British accent, he has asked me to take over hosting Francis Watch so he could work on a forthcoming show on Holy Scriptures with Father Nakamuke. My Lord Father, it gives me great pleasure to be hosting this show with both, and it's a shame that our subject is less than desirable. I believe there's a saying in the United States, the gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) Fortunately for us, Bergoglio is one of those gifts. He's able to provide enough material for a weekly show, never mind a monthly one. So this show is the first one of 2017 um, and I've decided to split this into three parts. The first one, as the last show was in November, um, we kind of didn't get the tail end of 2016. So. I'd like to do a summary or recap of 2016 and then jump into the hot button at the moment or the hot potato as uh, the Americans would like to say Um, and that that part of the show is called Jubigate and the final part of the show is entitled 2017 a year of anniversaries so part one With world events shaping up the way they are, we're entering in a new age. President Trump is in the White House. Congratulations to all Americans, by the way. And the UK is heading for an exit from EU, a so-called clean Brexit. So my question leads to the point, was the year of mercy a success? In Catholic terms, it's more of the same, but in a social cultural term, there is a shift developing and I'd like to talk about this theme um, throughout. So, my Lord, um, 2016, how was that for you? Well, as you say, from a Catholic point of view, there was absolutely nothing that happened. Uh, the, from the point of view of the Novus Ordo and a cultural point of view, I would say that uh, it was merely a, a, an ecclesiastical subterfuge for relaxing the rules of the moral law. Uh, Notably, and most notably, the approval of adultery uh, by means of the approval of Holy Communion to be given to open and public adulterers, uh, which is uh, not a mercy at all. It it is a violation of the law of God, a very serious one. It brings to mind uh, uh, St. Thomas More, who lost his head over that very issue, whether the king's 
marriage was not an adulterous one. Uh, and uh, so this goes against the very grain of, of Catholicism. And, and it is a heresy of the moral order. Because either you're saying that adultery is, is not a sin, that's a heresy. Or you're saying that it is legitimate to give Holy Communion to those who are in the state of mortal sin. That too is a heresy of the moral order. It is, it is a blasphemous sacrilege against the, the Holy Eucharist. So, but what, the way he means it is that even though these people uh, are in adultery, that they're not truly sinning. If you read all of his, his information on it, they're not truly sinning because they're in good conscience. They have worked this out in their consciences. They have made a discernment. They feel good about themselves, and therefore they should be able to approach the communion rail. Uh, so, you know, that was the main event of this year. Uh, there were a few other things like taking away the automatic excommunication for abortion, taking it away for, as a reserve sin to the bishop, and so any priest can absolve abortion. And what that does is essentially relax uh, the, the law against abortion. Uh, the, the reason why those, those were in place was in order to discourage young ladies from having abortion, it, that it was very difficult to become reconciled to the church. And if you, if you confessed abortion, the, the priest would have to say, you must return because I must inform the bishop, and he has to give me the permission to absolve you. So it, that, those are there for a medicinal purpose, and that is to make it difficult to commit the sin because it's difficult to be reconciled. And that's very much in accordance with the traditions of the church, uh, the, the difficulty in coming back, that there is a, the church will receive you back, but there's a difficulty in so doing. And that underlines the gravity of the sin. So, uh, you know, all of the other things that were done were pretty much uh, insignificant. But, uh, so I think from the point of view of the Catholic faith, uh, it, of course, it was just one more way of tearing down Catholic doctrine and morality and practice. I would add uh, to that that uh, on the whole issue of uh, remarriage, the giving of sacraments to those who in effect are living in uh, uh, public adultery, uh, and the whole theme of mercy, that these were themes that were announced right from the beginning by Francis in a series of interviews that he did. He raised the question of um, the people who were irregularly married. He raised the question of whether or not one could give uh, sacraments to them. And he also sounded the, the note and and uh, gave the, the theme that would justify this by referring to uh, Cardinal Caspar's book on mercy. Now, if you lived through the 60s as Bishop Sanborn uh, and I did, uh, you know that uh, this is coded language, and it was coded language of the type that Bergoglio was hinting to those who were listening for it of what he was actually going to do in terms of uh, uh, policy, and that he, it was going to be done under the false flag of mercy. That's, that is very interesting, Father, because shortly after the Year of Mercy ended, there was the apostolic letter Misericordia et Misera. 
and th that extends indefinitely the provisions of the year of mercy so Bergoglio is again sowing more of his confusion um, but in December last year he kind of he, he went quiet a little bit and I think I'd just like to talk about um, a certain prelate called Archbishop Ganschwein, um, excuse my pronunciation there, um, who just, this was shortly in the weeks leading up to the Christmas period, um, he, Archbishop Ganschwein, um, for those who are unaware, he holds two important Vatican positions. He is Francis Prefect of the Papal Household, and at the same time, he's the private secretary of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. And he recently said in an, in an article in Der Spiegel, there is neither proof that God nor exists, nor there is proof that God does not exist. Faith does not operate based on rational proof. Faith lives by witnesses and witnessing. If I am convinced by a witness and by what he does, then this sets faith ablaze. Everything else does not lead to faith, but remains outside of faith. This is true also, especially in our times. Uh, Father, um, would you uh, elaborate on that for us, please? <laughs> well, the fact that it, it comes from Genswine, um and someone like his position, he, he's not exactly, uh, you know, ecclesiastical small potatoes you know, Kleine Kartoffeln or whatever they would say. Uh, but it, it shows the uh, level of uh, the loss of faith uh, and uh, uh, common sense and, and uh, even basic theology at the uh, highest levels of the conciliar church. So this guy has a big position and he is, he is saying... Uh, something like this, which is, of course, contrary to uh, uh, to Vatican I. And we, we end up um, backing into, I guess, the heresy of, of uh, fideism, wouldn't you say, Your Excellency? Yes, uh, that, that it is impossible to know God by reason. And then he, he confuses everything as if to know God by faith is opposed to know, knowing God by reason, as if if you could do one, you could not do the other. <laughs> See, he opposes those two things as if contradictory, whereas you can know God by reason and you can know God by faith. See, so, and it is that statement that he made is so blatantly contrary to the definition of Vatican I that it is, without any kind of a doubt, blatant, open heresy. See, and I'll read to you Vatican I. The same Holy Mother Church holds and teaches, that's a sign of, of definition, that God, the beginning and end of all things, can be known with certitude by the natural light of human reason from created things. And then quotes St. Paul, which is also a sign of a definition, an infallible definition, because it's citing Revelation. Quote, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Now, another sign of definition 
is a corresponding canon. See, that what we just said would be sufficient for a definition, but when they put a corresponding canon, that means when they anathematize those who would deny what they said, then you have all of the characteristics of an infallible, solemn definition. Now listen to the canon. If anyone should say that the one true God, our Creator and our Lord, cannot be known with, the, with certitude by those things which have been made by the light, natural light of human reason, let him be anathema. So it's so clear that he has denied a doctrine of the Catholic faith. It would be like denying the Trinity or denying the Immaculate Conception. He has denied a dogma openly. And what to me is, is more shocking is the fact that no one picked up on this. There was not a single voice from either the modernists, who of course you know, would applaud him, but where were the Novus Ordo conservatives saying, oh my goodness, this is a, 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 a glaring heresy in the Vatican. Where were they? This, this person that is so close to the you know, super theologian uh, um, um, Ratzinger, how can you excuse him on the question of ignorance? I mean, any basic theology student would know what I just said. How can you excuse him on that? Secondly, people around him would know that this is a contradiction of Vatican I. Why was there no reaction at all? The, the modernists and the Novus Ordo conservatives particularly have lost any sensitivity to orthodoxy. There has been a death of orthodoxy. That is, that the, there, is, there is no sense of, of the fact that you must conform to the Catholic faith or else you're outside the church. That is dead. And they see the Catholic Church merely as an institution, like General Motors Corporation or, or some other large corporation that you belong to because you're an employee. And, and that's all that counts, is that you're in, you're baptized, you're in, you can say anything you want, you can contradict Catholic doctrine, it doesn't matter as long as you are on the, the, the register as being a Catholic. I mean, my Lord, my Lord, we, we saw this earlier on um, la last year, where the there is no Catholic God, Godspray instant from uh, Bergoglio himself, and the, the one thing about that whole episode is your sermon from the pulpit you seem to be the only one the lone voice crying out in the wilderness <laughs> i think that i called that sermon the death of orthodoxy the death of dogmatic orthodoxy that was the title of that sermon yes i remember it because uh there's there's nothing left there's no voice it's almost as if they've given up, gone home, shut the door, turn the lights out, that's it, done. Yes. They, they don't know, and they, uh, some of them don't know. And if they do know, they don't care or think that it makes no difference, that it's one more idea thrown into the mix and um, it's, it's nothing to worry about. Yes, yes. Or it's historicized. That, well, Vatican I was 1870, and they were reacting to semi-rationalism and, and the other isms of the 19th century, but we understand better now. It's also quite interesting that Archbishop Ganswein, 
um, the positions that he holds. So he's he's basically Francis's prefect, and at the same time, he's the secretary for Emeritus Benedict. Um, so there's sort of a hermeneutic of heresy going on there. Yes, yeah, so there's just sort of an outrage everywhere, but I would say particularly among the Novus Ordo conservatives. I mean, they must know this. You don't expect much from a modernist, obviously. But from those who, who are saying there's continuity, you know, we're, we're holding the line of continuity and those who deny continuity are the evil ones, those rotten sedificantists, where are they in, in this? Where are they in saying, oh no, this is not continuity, that he must be regarded as a public heretic? Where are they? Yeah, you don't hear much about the hermeneutic of continuity anymore. <laughs> I think that that's, that's sort of uh, discontinuous. Uh, because the Novus Ordo conservatives at least uh, realize that uh, it's impossible to defend so much of this stuff with a red face test in terms of orthodoxy. I mean, you you can't say it's 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 uh, Catholicism without your faith turning red. <laughs> <laughs> but then, but then they have to. If they were honest, they would say, "Well, then there's discontinuity." Yeah. If you cannot defend continuity, there's only one answer left. Then there's discontinuity. If you have dogmatic discontinuity or discontinuity in any of the essential elements of the church, liturgy. Uh, morals, uh, disciplines, essential disciplines, uh, or dogma, you, you have a, a defected church. You have a church that has fallen down and has proven itself false, or you have a hierarchy that is not the Catholic hierarchy. Those are your two choices there, all right? And where you, because we are not permitted to say by faith that the church has defected, we must look for the defection where the, the defection can take place. And that is in human beings who have defected from the faith, but who are unfortunately living in the Vatican and living in chancery offices and other places, strutting around in purple cassocks and other sorts of paraphernalia that make them look like Catholics and Catholic hierarchy, but who are not. That's where the defection is. And that's the only place in which it can take place. And our duty is to show that they are, they are defective, that they have defected. All right, that's the honest approach. The, the Novus Ordo conservatives are now living in some sort of fog world uh, in which they are aghast at what Bergoglio is doing, but they, they just uh, are sinking more and more into an intellectual dishonesty. To, to move us on, my lord, um so th those quotes came out around Christmas time in November, in December, and Bergoglio also addressed the Jesuits um, around the, in the Christmas period at La Civilita Catolica. And this, if you go on NovusOrdoWatch.org, um, this is the article about decadent scholasticism. So I find find this whole this part interesting because on the one hand there is a complete lapse of orthodoxy in the Novus Ordo Church, but yet they're still saying it was this decadent scholasticism that provoked causistic attitude. 
It is curious the course on the sacrament of penance in the Faculty of Theology, in general, not everywhere, was presented by teachers of sacramental morality. The whole moral sphere was restricted to you can, you cannot, up to up here, yes, but not there. In an audimini, I can't pronounce that. In an ad ad audiendas. Thank you, my lord. Examination. A companion of mine, when asked a very intricate question, said very simply, "But father, these things do not happen in reality." And then the examiner replied, "But it's in the books." And in the field of morality, we must advance without falling into situationalism. But rather, it is necessary to bring forward again the great wealth contained in the dimension of discernment. This is characteristic of the great scholasticism. We should note something: Saint Thomas and Saint Bonaventure affirm that the general principle holds for all. They say explicitly, as one moves to the particular. This question becomes diversified, and many nuances arise without changing the principle. The scholastic method has its validity. It is the moral method used by the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and it is the method used in the last apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia. After the discernment made of the whole Church through the two synods, the morality used in Amoris Laetitia is Thomistic, but that of the great Saint Thomas itself, not of the author of. Puncta in flatter. So this was the address of Bergoglio um, to the Jesuits in the 36th General Congregation. So to our listeners, bear that bearing that in mind, here is what a true Pope thought about modernists and scholasticism. Against scholastic philosophy and theology, they use weapons of ridicule and contempt, whether it is ignorance or fear or both. That inspires this conduct in them. Certain it is that the passion for novelty is always united in them with hatred of scholasticism. There is no surer sign that a man is tending to modernism when he begins to show his dislike for the scholastic method. They exercise all their ingenuity in effort to weaken the force and to falsify the character of tradition, so as to rob, of, rob it of all its weight and authority. And that was from the encyclical Pescendi by Pope Saint Pius X. So, my lord, on the one hand, we have a quote from Bergoglio, which is uh, an English expression, "all over the shop," and then you have clear logical thinking by Saint Pius X. So, could you explain for our listeners what is meant by scholasticism? It is the general term for the theology and philosophy of the Catholic Church, which was, you might say, crystallized or summarized by St. Thomas Aquinas. But there are other scholastics there besides St. Thomas Aquinas. And that method, which is a very, very clear method of deducing from revelation conclusions by the use of philosophy and principally Aristotelian philosophy as it was perfected by St. Thomas, uh, it, is a, it, it, it shows very clearly how the conclusions are drawn from revelation. Uh, and the modernists always hated it because it was so clear, it was so logical, it was short and to the point, and you could not in any way massage it. 
because the conclusions were as hard as steel when they came out of those syllogisms. So it's, it's a, uh, an approach, a very, very methodical, cold approach to, to Revelation, drawing from Revelation conclusions by ap the application of philosophy. That's what, that's what scholastic theology and philosophy is. And uh, the, the principal proponent was St. Thomas Aquinas. And so it, it, the, the modernists have always hated scholasticism. Ratzinger hates scholasticism. One thing they tried to do, though, because there was so much approval of scholasticism uh, by Leo XIII and other Roman pontiffs, uh, including St. Pius X, they figured, well, we have to in some way uh, you know, improve it so that it can be used by modernists. And so in Belgium, particularly at Louvain, they came up with a, a concoction whereby the system of Immanuel Kant, which is subjectivism, was in some way uh, uh, compatible with St. Thomas Aquinas, which is absolutely impossible. I, it would take me hours to explain it. But it's, it's just two things that are so totally opposed one to another that this attempt was, was, was absolutely absurd. It was Cardinal Mercier, actually, who, who was at the head of that, but there were many other uh, modernist-leaning theologians uh, during the 30s and the 40s who, who were part of that. Uh, and so he is, you can see the same thing in, in Bergoglio that he hates scholasticism, but he has to, in some way, approve of St. Thomas Aquinas. You see, he can't just throw St. Thomas in the trash uh, or in the dustbin, to be British. <laughs> He's got to some way, in some way, protect him. So notice what he says. First of all, he, he, he completely uh, he talks about the evils, the evils of, of scholastic moral theology and, and how, how and what he's really attacking is how clear it was that yes is yes, no is no. But then he says, oh, you know, this, the, the real scholastics, St. Thomas, you know, St. Bonaventure, they affirm that the general principle holds for all, but, which is the magic conjunction. They say it explicitly, I'm quoting him, all right, Ber Mr. Bergoglio, give us the reference. They say it explicitly. Could we have a footnote, please? So that we can go check your sources and see where they say this explicitly. And what do they say? As one moves to the particular, the question becomes diversified and many nuances arise without changing the principle. Now, if you're going to say that adultery is justified by nuances that don't change the principle, well, you are just a fool because St. <laughs> Thomas would never say such a thing. St. Bonaventure would never say such a thing. God would never say such a thing. But that's what he is trying to do. He's trying to enlist St. Thomas and St. Bonaventure as the good guys in scholasticism who would approve of his wicked and filthy approval of adultery. That's, that's what this is. And footnote free, <laughs> footnote free, that is that we cannot check his references. Of course, he must be an expert in St. Thomas because he says it explicitly, you know, the St. Thomas. Uh, 
and, and he says, this scholastic method has its validity. You see? Uh, so that, that's what he's trying to do. And he says, in the field of morality, we must advance without falling into situationalism. That means situation ethics. Oh no, we have to stay away from that. But rather, it is necessary to bring forward again the great wealth contained in the dimension of discernment. It, discernment is like the savior of the world now. Everything is possible through discernment. Discernment means we think about the problem of adultery and then we think, well, we're not so bad after all, and you know, we love each other, and this is a lasting union, so we should be able to go to Holy Communion. And then the priest accompanies them. That's the other savior of the world, is that the priest accompanies you through your sin. You see, he, he walks with you. It's like walking someone to the edge of a cliff at the Grand Canyon, and then helping them to go off down the 5,000 feet to the bottom. <laughs> All right, that, that's accompaniment. That's exactly what they're doing. And so this is, is a, a grotesque form of enlisting St. Thomas in his dirty morality that he has promulgated during this year of mercy. Well, one thing that uh, I would uh, add to that, Your Excellency, something that um, constantly has to be pointed out to uh, Catholics who are puzzled by modernist discourse, especially conservatives, that you always have to look for the but clause. You find that in Vatican II, uh, where they will uh, admit something and say it's a general principle, but then but, however, some sort of a qualification. He does that twice here. And uh, that is the, uh, that's typical of uh, their method to put you into confusion by uh, enunciating something that should be a some sort of an ironclad general principle, but then turning around and undermining it in a subordinate clause. They pull that off all the time. And, you know, we see it here. Uh, the question becomes diversified, right? The spouses become diversified. I think that's the, that's the aim of it. And then the... the um, uh, what you uh, what you quoted further down as well. So you have a uh, always this this um, uh, fake affirmation of a principle th th that's true, and then undermining it in the next subordinate clause. They yeah. affirm something traditional, you know. But however, you know, some sort of adversative uh, uh, word, uh, whereby it, what they just said is not true. Yes, that, that um, uh, you know, Latin is to be uh, the language of the Roman liturgy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but uh, a place is uh, made as well for the legitimate use of the vernacular. So it's always something like that. It's always back and forth. I mean, my lord, you've always said that Bergoglio, it's, Bergoglio is not the problem. It's Vatican II, and Bergoglio is just basically the mouthpiece of Vatican II. He's the, the gift that keeps giving Vatican II. And he's the, the true interpreter of Vatican II. He said it when he was elected that I'm the only one that has the humility to, to apply Vatican II. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing him, but that up to now it has never really been applied. And I agree with him that, that there has been a reticence to take Vatican II to its ultimate conclusions. 
And he does not have any reticence about that at all. Uh, I agree with him. So I think we are facing Vatican II uh, very, very uh, squarely it, through this, this so-called pontificate of Bergoglio. So that was the tail end of 2016, the, the big headlines from that period. Um, there is one big piece of headlines which we'll discuss in the next part of the show. However, Father, could you give us a brief assessment of how 2016 was in terms of the Novus Ordo and Bergoglio? Well, it's, it's simply more of the same, and the revolution is picking up a momentum. It's like it's, it's rolling down the hill. And he, he got it started with his election. He pre-intoned different things he was going to do. He had the two uh, synods. Um, people uh, at the beginning had uh, those who were conservative for the most part talked about, you know, uh, interpreting Francis through Benedict, that there was, uh, you know, some sort of continuity. He had to be uh, explained in the uh, correct fashion, you know, uh, uh, 10 important things to uh, know about uh, Pope Francis when he seems to approve adultery or something like that. So you saw articles like that, and those people have mostly shut up. And uh, 216 uh, or in 2016, I think was the uh, was the the beginning of that. That the, the uh, conservatives are starting to realize that the revolution is picking up uh, momentum, and things are only going to get worse and worse and worse. I agree. It's 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 like a, a virtual. It's effectively like an avalanche, a small stone skipping down. Eventually, this giant flood of weight of snow falls down and um, crushes the Novus Ordo, really. It's something um, like the water that's coming over the dam in California. <laughs> yes. The thing to do is evacuate. We'll move on to part two of the show. This section, I'd like to particularly discuss the dubia um, and, more importantly, the silence from Francis on the subject. So... At the time of recording this show, listeners, um, just to let you know, we did think there would be a formal answer from Bergoglio on the Jubia. However, that was not to be, and we'll come on to that a little bit later. So since, my Lord, you covered this with Stephen in your last show, I would like to get Father Chicada's opinion on the matter, and then we'll take that forward and cover the recent events um, regarding the Jubia. Well, I, uh, the story is well known of, of uh, Cardinal Burke and three other cardinals uh, proposing to Francis uh, uh, doubts based on the teaching of, of, uh, of Amoris Laetitia. And um, there's been nothing really uh, from Francis himself uh, directly on this particular issue so far. Uh, there's been, uh, you know, silence. And... Um, uh, some have uh, uh, stepped up to defend him, but that's pretty much uh, pretty much where we are. I'd just like to add to that that the whole idea of correcting a pope is false. Uh, when it comes to, to the uh, from the point of view of dogma or moral teaching, which is essentially the same, 
The, uh, Cardinal Burke is wrong, and I think I pointed this out before, but I'll say it again. Cardinal Burke is wrong to say that there are historical precedents to correcting popes. There are none. Not in the question of dogma and teaching. There are, there are corrections of popes in their activity. That is, uh, for example, St. Paul corrected St. Peter's activity. Uh, St. Bernard corrected the, the activity of Pascal II. Uh, the, uh, the University of Paris corrected or, or warned John XXII, but in a case not of church doctrine, but in a case of private theological opinion. But even there, they, they you know, gave him plain warning. Uh, the, and there are other cases, uh, St. Catherine of Siena coming to, to the Pope, begging him to go back to Rome. Uh, the, there are many cases of, of, of correcting popes, or, or a number of cases, uh, with regard to what they were doing. Uh, but you can't have a correction of a pope because you have no authority to correct a pope in matters of dogma and matters of morals, faith and morals. You have no authority to do that. Four cardinals are going to correct the Pope. Then, as I as I said, who do we listen to? The correctors or the Pope? The Pope says I'm right. The correctors say you're wrong. Well, who's right and who's wrong? Who who is the the ultimate judge of of dogma and morals in the Catholic Church? The answer is the Pope. So they have no basis to do this. I and mean, this is the same thing as recognize and resist. This is to say that we're not going to pay attention to your false doctrine in Amoris Laetitia. They can't do that. They must cite him for heresy. Otherwise, they must keep their mouths shut. But they cannot take this idea that we will fix everything by making a correction, as if this is something in canon law or in church history or you know, in some sort of document where cardinals come together and dogmatically correct the pope. It is unheard of. It's unheard of. And you know, for them to present it as some sort of legitimate means of solving the heresy problem of Bergoglio, which they won't admit ever because they know what happens. And Burke said what happens because they, there was a question put to him in December you know, what happens if, you know, he falls into public heresy? And he very correctly said, well, then he would automatically lose his office, which must have sent chills down the spines of the, of the Novus Ordo conservatives and of SSPX as well, who deny that very principle that we have been enunciating until we are blue in the face for years and years and years. Uh, and it's such a well-known principle. He just said it as if it were reciting the catechism. <laughs> He just said it so naturally that, that, well, what else would it be, you know? And, uh, but then he said, oh, you know, we're not at that point yet. And then, you know, he's all, you know, he backed out of it. So, you know, I just want to, as a preamble to any discussion about what's going on, this correction business is, 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 is absurd. Uh, it has no basis at all in Catholic theology and Catholic doctrine. And, and in any case, would not do any good. And you know, everyone thinks, well, now we can sleep tight in our beds because the correction has been made and, and, and everything is all right now. That's just not true. As a matter of fact, the correction would actually point out the heresy of Bergoglio and would open up a whole other can of worms. Yeah, this, this is, again, um, 
going back to uh, uh, Bergoglio talking about St. Thomas and St. Bonaventure and how, well, when they got down to the particulars, they, in effect, would um, uh, dilute the general principle that they enunciated. Uh, just as you asked, where is the citation for that to St. Thomas or St. Bonaventure? That was the first thing that uh, occurred to me when I uh, read about these, the, the, these dubia and this idea of correcting a pope. If you say that there is a precedent for it, well, where is the pre precedent for uh, correcting him for false teaching? for uh, heresy, for, for false doctrine. Yes, we'll go look it up. We can look it up and check it. No, so th that's just a preamble that people might think that this is some legitimate thing or some traditional thing that cardinals do. It isn't at all. It's as, it's as bogus and as newfangled as the Novus Ordo itself. If it had been, uh, believe me, if, if there had been a basis for it in tradition, um, with the internet and all these neocons, they would have been crazy coming up with uh, all sorts of citations for it. Instead, there's nothing because no one can back it up. You know, it's, it's um, uh, a principle that Cardinal Burke enunciated uh, in the void and uh, that uh, no one really had thought to justify in terms of uh, history or in terms of the standard teaching of uh, uh, Catholic theological manuals on uh, what one can and cannot do when it comes to the Pope. And, uh, you know, in their favor, I would say, they, they went to the heart of the matter in those questions. And they put, well, yeah, yeah. in their favor. Uh, but, and they, that shows me that they understand that he is, if he is a heretic uh, unless he were to repudiate essentially that whole doctrine, that whole document. Uh, they understand that because the questions were such, you can tell that they really figured out the questions very carefully about uh, um, that, that essentially they were saying that there's such a thing as something intrinsically evil and that it, that can never change. And if it's immoral uh, in its very principles, there can be no exceptions to it. That, that was the, the spirit of their questions, and that was well taken. That's true. But now, you know, and unless something is going to happen that we don't know about, uh, it seems that they have backed off of this whole thing completely, that, that, the, that Bergoglio has scared them into cowering to, to this, uh, this glaring problem of orthodoxy. There's been quite an interesting atmosphere regarding all this, the issue of the dubia, because whilst Francis has been perfectly silent on the matter, there has been reports coming from Rome in various magazines, uh, newspapers, radio interviews. Um, for instance, I'll draw attention to uh, um, the German magazine Der Spiegel, and Francis was described as being boiling with rage at the public release of the Dubia. Now, if this has never happened in the history of the church, how should a pope react to it? I think that a true pope would welcome any kind of reasonable criticism of something that he said in this sense that if he said something that was dubious, or ambiguous, or could be badly interpreted in some document, 
that he would welcome the fact that somebody came to him and pointed it out to him. As a matter of fact, the fact that the dubia became public says to me that these were submitted privately. Of course they were. Anybody that loves orthodoxy, that loves the Catholic faith, and especially who is very conscious of his, his, his duty to the truth of the Catholic faith that the Pope must be, would be horrified to find out that maybe I said something wrong. Horrified. Uh, and would immediately correct it. Uh, but he is not horrified. He goes into a rage that somebody would correct him. My goodness, you know, that somebody found something wrong with what he said. He would go into a rage. Contrary to what he said num a number of years ago, that he likes to be criticized. <laughs> it's not very humble, is it? No, he, no but he, he was, yes, that these cardinals would have the, the gall and the nerve to, to question him, that he might be a heretic. Uh, that, you know, that, uh, that is a reaction of a heretic. That's not a reaction of somebody who loves Catholic orthodoxy and the clarity of Catholic teaching. And, you know, if he saw those dubia that, and, and you know, the context of it, that, you know, your, your document would lead us to these questions, any Catholic Pope would just, you know, just, just be, be very mortified by the very thought that he did, was not clear enough. But we know that he was clear. It, the, the document speaks for itself. It, it's as clear as day, and this dubia business is really, uh, as I said, it, it's, it's an absurdity. They should have cited the document and accused him of heresy. That's what they should have done. And, and if he did not repent privately, then become public with the accusation of heresy. Uh, that, that's the only path that they can take. Anything else has no precedent in history and nothing in sacred theology or canon law to uphold it. But the, the fact of heresy in the Roman pontiff is much commented on by theologians and canonists and the, the proper way for the cardinals to react is to accuse him and if the accusation is repudiated or not corrected, then in that case, they move against him, declare the see vacant, and elect a pope. See, that, that's the process for them, and I'm sure Father Chicada would concur, who's read an awful lot on this, that this is attested to as the general practice that is, that is suggested and, and really the only thing that the cardinals can do, because they control the election, see, the elective process, so they can't, I mean, this is all assuming, you know, that he's a true pope. That's, that's you know, but the, that, you know, that they, they cannot judge him, they cannot put him on trial, but they can notice, take note of the fact that he is a public heretic and that, that in itself has certain theological and canonical effects and therefore they move against him, they, they, they declare him non-pope, and then they elect a, uh, uh, another pope. Uh, that's, uh, again, assuming that he was a true pope. When, you know, you take out that factor in it, well, then that's a whole other thing. But uh, that, that can be their only Catholic approach. The thing I would add to that, Your Excellency, is that there's so much written that's been written since the 90s and published on the question of a heretical pope. All of the stuff that uh, we've uh, dug up and that is available on the internet that 
talks about this particular issue. You know, and uh, the the idea that somehow they've come up with this this correction business uh, and, and can give no citation whatsoever for it. Come on, guys! I mean, it's the, all of the um, uh, uh, you know you can cite perhaps thirty theologians who talk about the question of the heretical pope and who talk about what happens and talk about the 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 loss of the pontificate, uh, etc. And these people are coming up with a correction? I mean, come on. You know, they've heard all of this stuff. It's, it's, it strikes me as a, uh, as a real absurdity. It's intellectually dishonest, I think. You know, that, that uh, it, it has no basis anywhere. And they should know that these people, uh, I mean, you could tell from the interview that, that Cardinal Burke is certainly, certainly a learned person. He's an intelligent person. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's a canonist. He must know the, the history of canon law even before the 1983 code. He must be familiar with all of these things. The fact that he responded so quickly on what would happen uh, shows yeah. that he has studied the issue. So, yeah, it, it's, but once again, what can you expect from these Novus Ordo prelates? There's nothing. I mean, it, it's, all, it, it's all defection. It's, it's quite interesting, my lord. Um, we, we were talking a bit about Cardinal Burke's YouTube videos before. And uh, for, for our listeners, if you can, if you just type in Cardinal Burke Jubia and on YouTube, you'll, Cardinal Burke did a series of videos to American media. And one of the things I took away from it was that Francis himself is not in heresy but a heretical pope would lose the office automatically. Now, Burke is one of the, the four ringleaders of the, the, the Jubia. And it, it's quite interesting, his state of mind. He's not quite ready to declare Bergoglio a pope, but he knows exactly what to do with a heretical pope. Well, he's not ready to declare him a heretic. I think that's what you mean. You said oh, a pope, yeah. yes, yes, yes. He's not ready to declare him a heretic, but he knows what to do, yes, in the, in the event that he is a heretic. You know, it's possible that they're trying to get some more cardinals on their side. That, you know, they're, they're, they might be stalling for that reason, I don't know. But uh, their, their, their approach with the dubia was definitely wrong. Uh, they, they should have... Uh, circulated some letter uh, accusing uh, Bergoglio of the heresy to the cardinals uh, and uh, seen the reaction from that. Uh, the, um, but, you know, the, their approach is entirely wrong and, and misplaced. So, um, uh, but, you know, that, as I said, there's nothing more to expect from the Novus Ordo hierarchy. There's also a few um, articles on Norris Ordo Watch that I've, I've dug up as well. Um, apparently, Francis is not responding to the dubia to prevent a greater evil. <laughs> <laughs> is, this, is this his um, humility coming into play? He doesn't want to create a split in the church, so he's not responding full stop. Well, is that what even he said? I mean, he just said, I don't think he even said what the greater evil I d was. I don't think he did, no. It's, did um, it's in Religion Conf Confidential. Um, this was on uh, released in January the 
tenth, uh, and there's a full translation of the text on Novus Ordo Watch. Um, but just here's roughly what he said. He said, responding to the dubia would create a worse atmosphere within the Catholic Church, and the Pope prefers for the moment to remain silent about it and to follow the same line that has characterised his pontificate, prudence and discernment of the individual conscious. <laughs> discernment. Bow the head. Prudence and discernment of the individual conscience in this matter. That means adulterers, go ahead. You know, you have a free hand and just uh, adulterate all you want. Yeah, that, that's, that's, uh, that's what that means. Prudence and discernment. Yes. Uh, well, a worse atmosphere within the Catholic Church. <laughs> what does he mean by that? How could you, in responding to doubts and clearing up Catholic doctrine that might be ambiguously stated in this document, how could you in any way cause an evil? How could that be evil? That you are satisfying the doubts of people who are troubled, particularly cardinals. How is that an evil to do that? How could that make matters worse? You can only make matters better, I think, if you were to clear up a doubt. Why do clergy exist? People come to us all the time in doubt. Well, what should I do? What, what, you know, they, they approach priests in the confessional with questions. That's the purpose of the clergy, is to clear up doubt. So, and that, that doctrine should be clear. Why does the Catholic Church exist <laughs> except for that? And so how is it going to make things worse, as if they could get any worse? <laughs> well, the, the, uh, when you talk about uh, doubt, right, it's, it's, it's the, the what, wavering of the mind between two propositions, okay? And the, um, on one hand, you have, yes, um, uh, sacraments to adulterers uh, is is sinful, and on the other hand, you have the proposition that no, it's 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 fine, it's perfectly acceptable, and the uh, I think the the uh, trouble that Bergoglio sees obviously in resolving the doubt is precisely that it would would clarify things. It would either uh, he would either end up having to reaffirm in a clear way Catholic doctrine on why something like this is wrong, or to show his uh, rejection of that Catholic doctrine. And uh, so that's precisely why he would look upon resolving the doubt as something that would cause more difficulties. <laughs> it's perverse, but that's his, his, um, his way of thinking undoubtedly, because uh, to him it doesn't make any difference one way or another what you believe on this proposition. Chaos Franks likes to sow confusion. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, so at the time of recording this show, um, there is still no response to the dubia. Do you think this will keep rolling on or do you think it will be just swept under the carpet? I think it's destined to keep rolling on because you have to remember the, the issue of divorce and remarriage. Uh, and in the um, moral law, something that was really uh, drummed into Catholics, that, that they, um, you know, at least had an understanding uh, of that. 
And everyone has had a, um, or the vast majority of people have experience with the question of marriage. And what they hear from uh, the Vatican and from bishops and from supposedly their beloved Holy Father, uh, they uh, listen to and see in terms of, of their own particular situations. So it's not simply uh, a question of, let's say, the, the issue of ecclesiology uh, and the new ecclesiology, which is uh, harder for many people to understand and which may seem more abstract. But it's the question of the application of principles to something that most people know about in the practical order, and they're interested. They're interested in it. So I think it's it's a topic of uh, really of a, a, a abiding interest, and it will be it will continue to be an ongoing um, controversy among Catholics as 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 long as uh, uh, Bergoglio and company are around. It's not. I, it's not going to go away in the sense of of of. Um, uh, people are going to be uh, entirely at peace with it one way or another. I differ. I think it will go away. Uh, I think it, mm -hmm. it, yes, I think it will. I, I think that the most of the Novus Ordites, 95%, rejoice in it. They think it's a wonderful thing that, that finally the Church is permitting this. And then you have that 5% that are living in a world of dreams and have the Novus Ordo conservatives who uh, are intellectually dishonest and who will just uh, put their heads deeper into the sand about it. I, I think that they are content with doctrinal discontinuity, moral doctrine, uh, discontinuity and moral doctrine. That they, If they're not, they're not content, they at least live with it. As I always say, they wring their hands more, the eyeballs go around in the skull a few times, and then the whole thing is finished. They, they have had this catharsis whereby we don't have to think about this anymore, we'll move on, and, and, and just as long as we are, as a, they, they look at the church very materially, we, we are in this institution that, that has, has always been, and therefore, no matter what happens, if they, if they you know, say there's no God, it doesn't matter, uh, as long as this institution persists and, and endures, that's all we have to worry about. And they, so it's a type of materialism. Uh, they don't look at the, the, the essence of the church, which is to teach, rule, and sanctify, uh, to, to, to teach with the assistance of Christ infallibly and with continuity. They don't care about it. They, they have, their eyes have glazed over concerning those things, and they are prepared to take anything. They'll take women priests, They'll take anything as long as they remain in the material boat. <laughs> that that that's my yeah that's my take on it. Well, yeah, so what you're saying is is that they're like the boiled frogs, right? In other words, that it's 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 uh, the 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 boiling has taken place. Uh, <laughs> you know, gradually the heat has gradually increased. And uh, in the long run, they take basically anything. They're cooked. Yeah, they're cooked. They, they, they have lost their sense of dogmatic orthodoxy and the necessity uh, of rage against heresy, which is so much a part of the Catholic Church. It's an essential part of the Catholic Church, rage against heresy. They have lost it. 
and as I said, they are prepared for anything. Anything could happen. He could, he could say there's four gods or something. Anything at all, they will, they will live with it. The thing that they're concerned about is continuity in the institution. They do not understand that the institution exists for orthodoxy. It exists for continuity of doctrine. And all of the hierarchy and all of the other institutions exist for the essence of the church, the spiritual aspect of the church, uh, which is doctrine, liturgy, morals, continuity, sameness, and infallibility, indefectibility. They, they have no sense of that whatsoever. So I, I think they will just swallow this and, and continue to go to their adult masses or whatever they go to. And, you know, together with their adulterating friends. And then basically ignore it. Yes, yeah. I think that it'll just die. I think so. All right, well. We'll see. We we'll see. see. We'll, we can take bets. <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to remind you that you're listening to Francis Watch on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Dan Fitton. And you're listening to His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn and Reverend Father Anthony Chicada. So... We'll draw a close on Jubia Gate, and we'll look forward to 2017. Now, 2017 um, seems to be quite a, a year of anniversaries, um, many of them ominous. Um, this year, for instance, marks 500 years since the Protestant Reformation, October the 31st, 1517. 300 years since the founding of modern Freemasonry, the archenemy of the Catholic Church, June the 24th, 1717. 100 years since the communist revolution in Russia, March the 8th to November the 8th, 1917. 100 years since Monsignor Eugenio Pacelli, the future post Pius XII, was consecrated bishop. 100 years since Our Lady appeared to the shepherd children at Fatima and 100 years since publication of the Code of Canon Law, 1917. So there, there are a couple of good anniversaries, although I have one more which um, is not on the script. I believe it's 40 years since your ordination, Father. Yeah, yes, indeed it is. Isn't that something? In June. So it, uh, uh, time rolls on. I'm not going to say time flies when you're having fun, but it certainly rolls on. <laughs> a, a ray of sunshine in otherwise misery. I was going to say, which side of the, of the list do we put that one on? <laughs> <laughs> so, we've, we've talked about 2016. Um, my Lord and Father, what, what do you think we can expect from 2017? Uh, well, uh, I don't see any big changes in Bergoglio. Uh, we did notice, uh, Father Chicada pointed out, a, uh, that the women priest condemnation by uh, John Paul II back in 1994, which had all of the aspects of a solemn definition, was historicized. Wasn't that, didn't, did you point that out, Father Chicada? Yeah, the, 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 um, uh, uh, Jesuit, who I think he was the second in command, at, it was actually in Civilta Cattolica, which is kind of a, which is a semi-official uh, Vatican newspaper, and it's run by Spadaro, Antonio Spadaro, who is um, a he, he's like a Bergoglio's right hand man. 
He's, he's sort of the equivalent of, of uh, uh, Steve Bannon to Donald Trump. <laughs> so Sp <laughs> uh, Spadaro, uh, and I think Kellyanne Conway is, is waiting for ordination, but that's, that's another issue. <laughs> the... <laughs> So what about the, Pocahontas? Uh, well, yeah, Elizabeth Warren, you know, I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> certainly she would speak up for it, I think. Um, the, uh, so the second in command at uh, Observatory Romano wrote an article which uh, took the JP2 uh, declaration, oh, it was from some point in the 80s, uh, uh, which did have, as Bishop Sandward said, the, the, all of the indicia, all of the signs of a uh, solemn and sort of a, a definitive uh, resolution of the issue uh, by saying that no, you know, it, you could not have um, uh, women priests because of the tradition of the church. The article in Civilta Cattolica eventually, or in effect, sort of historicized that. Um, uh, that pronouncement by and historicization is a, a trick that the modernists use to relativize everything to give you no essences, no absolutes, no nothing. Whereby you look at a, a, a um, pronouncement such as JP two made, and you say that well, that was the the uh, effect of uh, several different uh, historical factors. But now history has moved on. The understanding of, of, of uh, women has uh, moved on. And now with these, these new understandings, these new glasses, uh, as it were, we can look at the historical context and um, uh, perhaps open the door to a change of the practical meaning of this historically conditioned pronouncement. They do that to every Catholic dogma. Yeah. And they, they, they pull stuff like, the modernists, as we know, pull stuff like this all the time. But um, it was interesting to see it done in uh, Civilta Cattolica or the question of women priests. And there was virtually nothing in the trad blog sphere uh, about this, which actually shocked me. I thought that this, um, people would have picked up on it right away to see what's going on. But um, uh, that is, I, I think that was something significant, especially since uh, the paper is run by a man who, um, you know, Bergoglio respects. That's, that's very interesting. I, I didn't pick up on that either, Father, that the Tradsphere didn't, didn't realize or, or didn't pick up on that thread. Because I've always uh, we'll talk. I, I think we'll talk a little bit later about the SSPX, but I've always wondered what will it take for the SSPX to wake up, and I thought women priests maybe that may be one. But if there's no response now, then I don't think there'll be one when the first woman priest is ordained in the Novus Ordo. I would love to see one of those women priests uh, like be a deacon at, at one of their masses or or something like that. That might be a you know, a nice refreshing change. Or, or maybe um, impose hands in one of the ordinations <laughs> out in the field. Yes. Maybe, maybe she might have one of those horrible giant rainbow chasubles as well. <laughs> oh, why not? <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah, it's always uh, like you see those Anglican women bishops in, in those mitres. I mean, I don't think there's anything more absurd. I don't think even a clown looks as absurd as one of those Anglican women bishops.
and yeah. so so that's entirely possible, you know, to 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 see them side by side with women bishops. Uh, but now they're prepared for everything too. I, I think it, just, just like the Novus Order conservatives, uh, they they are prepared for anything. That's their formula. Anything can be said. We will swallow it. We will just let it pass by because uh, of the what I would call an ecclesiastical materialism. See that that all that matters is that you're in the boat, and you know that there's there's filth in the boat. Uh, that's, uh, I've been accused of using that word too much, but I, I have no other word for it right now. Uh, it doesn't matter as long as the boat is there. So that, that's, that's, uh, um, Phil Stone has collected my favorite words, by the way. Phil Stone is the Australian, <laughs> just as a little footnote to all of this. He's the Australian interviewer. He has all of my favorite words. He told me this when I was in Australia. And so I have made a list and I forgot to bring it today, of other favorite words. I looked them up in a thesaurus so that he will not be able to accuse me anymore of using the same words over and over again. But, it, the, uh, but for lack of a better term, you know, if there is decadence or, or lack of orthodoxy in the boat, that doesn't matter as long as you're in the boat. And uh, as I said, the boat is made for orthodoxy and, and doesn't have any sense at all and doesn't have a reason for existence except to to be a container of orthodoxy. The, the other point on the issue of the Society of St. Pius X would be this. I think that they could um, uh, accept being part of the Novus Order institution, even with women priests, because of this factor, that they have the idea that they have a special mission from God. And that, uh, you know, they're the only, um, like Rush Limbaugh, I guess, uh, they're the only... Um, uh, people who ultimately, uh, you know, can save the church because they've they've been founded by this this great uh, heroic bishop, and that they they uh, that therefore they can, can ignore all of these other things and be part of that institution because they're the great leaven for the restoration of it, and that is the mentality. I think they see themselves as the Trojan horse in the. City of God, sort of speak, in reverse. In other words, that they will go into this, this uh, cesspool of Vatican II as a Trojan horse and that they will come out of the horse and fix everything. Well, I think the opposite will be true. I think there will be a lot of horse meat that will be consumed <laughs> by the Vatican II hierarchy and, and, and so forth. A horse, mi horse meat lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so briefly, briefly going back to um, the Lutherans, um, earlier on this year, so the beginning of January, um, the during the week um, that traditional Catholics would know as the Chair of Unity Octave, but the Novus Ordo would know is the week of prayer for Christian unity. Um, there was a, a slight, well, uh, shall we say, um, a major heresy from Bergoglio. So he talked about Luther being a witness to the gospel. And I think this is more on the thread from last year where Luther or the, the Pope or Bergoglio the false pope is trying to get ever closer and closer towards the Lutherans and include them in the grand, as Father Chicard has once dubbed it, the grand Frankenchurch idea. 
Well, I think that he's a witness to the gospel now because he told the elector of Hesse that he could marry two wives instead of just one. <laughs> so that makes him a witness to the gospel, you see, uh, you know, uh, yeah, and that uh, if, if you're having trouble with your wife, then let the maid come in. Uh, so having a little adultery, you know, it, with discernment, you know, that you can, uh, that's a witness to the gospel. So he, Luther predated all of this discernment and all of this, this accompaniment of adulterers by, you know, by 500 years. So he was a witness to the gospel because he understood the gospel. He understood that when the woman caught in adultery was not stoned, that that meant that you can go commit adultery and still be in good conscience and go to Holy Communion. A perfect point uh, to be made today, Your Excellency, as we're recording this on St. Valentine's Day. I, so. I did I did sell this to my wife that I'll be talking to the bishop on St. Valentine's Day, so what better Valentine's gift can I get for my wife than the Bishop Sanborn and Father Chicardo? So. <laughs> I don't know about that. Maybe she had other plans, uh, the, uh, like going out to dinner or getting a big box of chocolates. Oh, <laughs> We, we've eaten the chocolates. It's, uh... <laughs> so I, I'd advise our listeners, um, if you haven't already, check out novusordowatch.org. And there is a, I've, I've sent the image to Father Chicada and Bishop Sanborn, but there's a, a, an extremely humorous image of Bergoglio's face pasted onto an old portrait of Martin Luther. Um which sums up the situation entirely, to be honest. Yes, yes, that is about it. He, he, uh, he is a, a new Martin Luther, and he will do some outrageous things this year, this coming year, uh, in the ecumenical order. Uh, I'm sure he's going to say things and do things that, that will exceed the outrages and abominations of previous years. Uh, even uh, of John Paul II, who, who took part in every religion on the face of the earth. Uh, if it existed, he, he had an ecumenical meeting with it and took part in their services. <laughs> and uh, Did he discern? Uh, oh, he was full of discernment, <laughs> yes. And, no. uh, but I don't think he got to a discernment about uh, people uh, living in adultery. I think he was a little, we might say, prudish about that sort of thing. And, but uh, Bergoglio, he's really applying Vatican II, so up to now it's been stifled by these you know, arch-conservatives, John Paul II and Ratzinger, these people that have really stifled Vatican II. <clears throat> and by the way, I mean, getting, just be, I mean, this might be jumping the gun, but the, you know, everybody is shocked. That, oh, you know, the Knights of Malta were giving out contraceptive devices. Uh, you know, oh, ter terrible, terrible, terrible. And, and it was Ratzinger who said that it is legitimate for, for people in Africa, for prostitutes, both male and female, to use contraceptive devices. Now, if it is, if it is legitimate for them to use them, it is automatically legitimate for anybody else to use them because that's something that regards natural law. So natural law does not admit any exception whatsoever, even if you have to accept death, you cannot make an exception for natural law. That's the general principle. There is never an exception for natural law. So if you make an exception for prostitutes in Africa, uh, you are making an exception for everybody and it destroys natural law. See, so that's the arch-conservative Ratzinger 
you know, and that's, you know, that's untouchable because he said it. So why not then distribute these, these devices if it's perfectly okay, according to Ratzinger? But no one takes Ratzinger to task for that. No. So, uh, as, as you mentioned it, my lord, we'll, uh, we'll move on towards um, the, the Malta issue. So, um, for the benefit of our listeners, my lord, could you just give us a brief overview of um, what the issue with Malta is, and more specifically about... Father Chikata is going to handle this because he's an expert on it. <laughs> on the Knights of Malta. <laughs> A long time ago, I wrote an article about the Knights of Malta. So, yeah, that, that um, in any event, uh, what the Knights of Malta uh, is, is a um, uh, <coughs> religious order, Catholic religious order, that um, started out as an order, in effect, of, of warrior monks, as it were, uh, whose job it was to... Uh, defend the holy places in uh, Jerusalem, and also to take care of the sick and uh, the pilgrims. And eventually, because of the uh, incursions of uh, the religion of peace, uh, Islam, uh, they were moved back to um, uh, Crete and, and then, then Rhodes, I think. And then eventually, uh, they ended up on the island of, of Malta in the, in the Adriatic. They should have issued and, an immigration ban. Uh, yeah, that's right. It, it was... Uh, uh, yes, uh, an executive uh, order, but they didn't do it and see what happened. <laughs> it probably got gummed up in the courts. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The, the uh, Supreme Court. So the... Uh, so uh, uh, there they stayed uh, in in Malta, and uh, eventually their um, state was taken away from them, I believe, by Napoleon. And but they continued to be recognized as a uh, religious order and as a sovereign state. And they have a uh, they have a headquarters in Rome. I think it's on the the Via Condotti up on the uh, the top of a hill. And from there, they conduct their, conducted their charitable activities uh, throughout the world. In fact, in disaster areas, you would uh, 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 frequently see in, 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 in films in, uh, the blankets being handed out with the insignia of the, uh, of the Order of Malta on them. So th they remain uh, active, and they had uh, several le levels of membership. And the highest level of membership were actually uh, Catholic religious, the equivalent, um, I suppose, of, of uh, monks who were uh, drawn from the ranks of the Catholic nobility. And then below that you had, I guess you could say, sort of uh, uh, second class or honorary members who were uh, simply members of, of uh, the laity, often from the aristocracy, who um, uh, supported the ends of the order to engage in this uh, religious and in this charitable work. So that's the, the historical background. Uh, here briefly is uh, here briefly is what happened that uh, there, uh, the issue of, of contraceptives uh, uh, came up and became a, a, a matter of controversy because the Chancellor of the order, 
a man named, uh, who's the second in command, uh, something like uh, uh, Boslager, he uh, permitted the dis- distribution of contraceptives in, uh, in Burma, uh, also called Myanmar. Uh, so uh, what happened is this became a, uh, uh, this, init- this initially was not well known, uh, but it uh, became well known in the old, uh, in the order, and then became, uh, for that reason, a um, uh, you know question of, of scandal. So uh, he, the second in command, uh, was uh, asked to resign. Uh, Cardinal Burke, uh, who is the protector of uh, the Knights of Malta, that was the post to which he was uh, demoted after, by Bergoglio, having been the uh, uh, head of, in effect, the Vatican Supreme Court. Um, uh, Burke was involved in this, and it is said uh, he, uh, at a meeting with the head of the order and with the second in command, um, uh, Burke conveyed the idea that it was the, 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 uh, chancellor should be forced to resign, and that this this was the uh, the will of Bergoglio, Francis. So, in any event, the uh, he was the the second in command was removed. This became then a public uh, controversy. Then uh, the Vatican Secretary of State, and it gets complicated. Um, uh, basically, said that the Pope was not content with uh, the way this was handled and was appointing a special commission to look into the whole affair of of Boslager and whether it was handled correctly. Uh, Eventually, the head of the order, uh, a man named uh, Festing, uh, he was uh, invited to the Vatican and Bergoglio asked him to resign on the spot, which he did. And then, as a result of that, um, uh, Boslager was restored to his position. So that's more, it's a complicated thing, a uh, complicated story, but that's more or less, I think, where it, it uh, sits, sits at the present. And it's all uh, very confusing, and one wonders, uh, because of the involvement of Cardinal Burke, if, uh, the, if he was given uh, one uh, intentionally given a false signal by Bergoglio to go and get rid of this man, a, a Boslager, uh, then to provoke a public controversy uh, over the order, and then uh, in effect to get rid of Burke because of it. So it's, it's, it's a whole soap opera. So my question is, is the Vatican in charge of the Order of Malta as we speak? Yeah, in, in, effectively they are. Uh, they, they have a uh, uh, they have a, a commission uh, that was appointed by the Secretary of State, and the Supreme Council of the Order just sort of folded. Uh, normally, it, it, because it's it, it, of its rather unusual status as a sovereign state, uh, you uh, the matter would not have been handled this way. But that was something that Bergoglio. Uh, I suppose really doesn't care about because it's all sort of medieval and involves legal principles. So he just went ahead and acted. As as um, well, the the no pope was he in his right to do that? Well, the question is that the the, the legislation um, uh, 
as I understand it, that um, uh, concerns the the governance of the order says as uh, or, or says as far as the religious governance of the um, those who have solemn vows that the Pope definitely has authority over that, but does not have authority over the questions that involve the order as a sovereign state and as a civil entity. Also tied in with this was a um, a huge amount of money, $125 million inheritance that the um, uh, second-in-command who had been expelled uh, was connected with in uh, Switzerland. And uh, also the brother of the second-in-command was just appointed to the board of the uh, uh, Reformed Vatican Bank. So it's all very complicated. But um, the, the uh, Bergoglio's attitude was don't sweat the normal legal procedures that just you know, take it over. Uh, and that effectively is what, what has happened. So they, they will uh, probably end up turning uh, into the equivalent of, uh, you know, an NGO, one of those not charitable, supposedly non-governmental organizations. Salvation Army. <laughs> yes, uh, Salvation Army, uh, even without nice uniforms. Then, so. <laughs> uh, but that's... The, uh, so it's, it's, it's a very bizarre episode and, you know, there's money involved and, a, uh, and, and then uh, Burke, it, it, it could have been a um, uh, sort of a whole false flag operation in order to get Burke even from his, his uh, low position as, as the patron of the Knights of Malta. So where, where do you think Cardinal Burke would go now? Will he just... Be a non. He'll he'll form his own non-government organization, and he'll he'll form his own parish or something. Be like a cardinal without orders, you know. Just go wherever he pleases. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, <laughs> we've got a spare room. <laughs> but, but he survived as the protector, didn't he, or not? Uh, he survived as the protector, but now there are uh, sounds that um, the, there are rumors that he's going to go. That. Yeah, that, that um, because the way it's happened is what's happened is normally you would have the cardinal protector of a religious order involved in um, you know, fixing some sort of problem, helping fix some problem. But he's been pushed aside by Parolin, who's the Secretary of State, uh, and this uh, commission. So uh, he's he's I think been sidelined. Mm. Obviously, Bergoglio has no use for him. Oh, of course. Yes. Yeah. Probably believes in God. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. You know. Uh. <laughs> so, before we move to our final topic of the show, I'd just like to um, go back a, a step. And um, so, it's a new year, and Francis is still doing those videos. Now. By now, you'd have thought that they would have died a death, and um, for some reason, he seems to like doing these. And it brings back to the point earlier on that um, his lordship uh, sort of talked about was um, the new religion of ecumenism. So, the January's video was all about ecumenism for a better world. Uh, I'd highly advise um, 
our listeners, before you watch the Pope video, or actually I'd advise you not to watch the Pope video, but before you do, arm yourself with some good Catholic doctrine and listen to the show Popes Against the Modern Errors that our Lordship did with Matt Gaskin on Mortalium Animos, and then go watch the video on Acumism and see for yourself. But that's not the only video that Bergoglio did, did he? So um, he recently, um, correct me if I'm wrong, there's something the Americans have called a a Super Bowl or something, which is quite a, quite a large sporting event. Now, for me as yes, an, it, an no, English... No, right, well, let me stop you right there. <laughs> it's the American equivalent of the Church of England. It's like a national religion. <laughs> So we have to speak respectfully of it, you know. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I speak with reverence and respect. Well, the New England <laughs> Patriots won, so that that's, I don't know <laughs> if that warms your heart, but... Yeah. England England won then. <laughs> yeah. um, well, to, an, to an Englishman, um, I like the sport of rugby, which is basically... American football without the pads and without the complicated <laughs> plays, without the cheerleaders. It's it's basically a bunch of men hitting each other very hard, which which and there's a there's a tournament on at the moment in the in the uh, in Europe called the Six Nations, which uh, is our Super Bowl that happens every year. But back to the point, um I believe there was a as Bergoglio likes his sport. I believe he uh, he appeared at the Super Bowl during the halftime show. Well, uh, was that in the form of entertainment or or I, I, I don't know. P- personally, I, I didn't I didn't watch the video, um, but I'm, I'm guessing you did neither, my lord. Um. <laughs> nor, nor did I. In fact, I didn't even know who was playing. I was on an airplane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, well, it's it's again uh, making the Catholic Church absurd. Uh, it's it's uh, naturalistic. It's making a better world through sports and peace through sports. All of those silly nonsensical uh, themes of of the modern world. Uh, that's all participating in that. I mean, the sports are just a game. I always say this. I mean, it, it, there's really nothing different between a football game and a game of cards or checkers or, or chess. And as a matter of fact, checkers or chess and cards would require more intellectual activity than a football game. Uh, so the, uh, you know, it's, but it's to extol these things uh, as if they were, it's like the gladiatorial games of the, of the Romans, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the bread and circuses. And, and it's to extol these things as if there is some great human achievement in this you know it's like the olympics you know oh, you know this is this is humanity at its height uh th- that's that's the culture it it's sickening it's it's decadent it's stupid uh, everything else you want to say about it well in in england um olympians now get a medal uh, get don't get the well they don't get they get medals but they um they get a knighthood so um Traditionally, in the medieval times, you'd have to be a person of great renown, great respect, um, great nobility to receive a knighthood. And now, every t- I'm 
and piety, you're right, my lord. And nowadays, every Tom, Dick, and Harry can get a uh, get a knighthood. Um, for instance, a, a famous footballer called David Beckham tried to get a knighthood by being a charitable person and donating huge sums of money to um, the charity UNICEF. Although that that backfired upon him, but comes round to my point that you know it's that sort of um, noble ideal of um, the knight has been perverted in the modern world and and the, the the sportsman is worshipped more than I'd say well they're, they're respected more than the clergy um, and yeah it's uh, it's a sign of decadence. Exactly. It's it's a decadent uh, civilization, you might say, or the decadence of a civilization. When you consider uh, medieval England, medieval France, and knighthood uh, in those cases, and the virtue that was required, the strength and the courage that was required, uh, it's all just decadent now. We are living in, in unprecedented decadence, intellectual decadence, moral decadence, the whole thing. I mean, the, uh, just uh, what England has become since since the end of World War One. Uh, when you think of, of its its all of its culture and its dignity and all, all of the things that we associate with England, and now it has just descended into in a short period of time that you're making you know these horrid musicians. Didn't didn't they make a night out of Elton John? Yeah, Isn't he a knight? I mean, you know, I mean, just where do you begin? I mean, how does the queen bring herself to do this stuff? I mean, you know, the queen of England, you know, just everything that, and I'm not trying to make you feel bad. It's just we looking outside at England. You know, England was the, historically, the, the place of, of military glory, naval glory, uh, civilization, uh, refinement, everything, you know, noble and, and, <laughs> It's just amazing that that in such a short period of time, I mean, not even Rome decayed in, in such a short period of time, you know, it, and, and, uh, and our own culture too, in France, the same thing. But Europe, it's more, it's more striking for us, especially because we're mm. familiar with European history. And of course, you see Europe as sort of the standard of, of everything that's uh, civilized. You know, we just see it that way, and we we take European civilization uh, in a heartbeat. You know, as far as art, music, everything. I mean, how many how many paintings were bought by American billionaires over there, and uh, you know, brought over to this country because this country is basically culturally destitute, and and mm -hmm. so you know, it it borrows from European civilization. So we look at it in that light that you know, here Europe that that is supposed to be what it is. <laughs> The, the standard of, of civilization, Western civilization, has become in such a short period of time uh, a, a, uh, you know, just, uh, something unspeakable, you know, it, it's, uh, and I'm sure you understand it too, you know, it's just, uh, it might be more shocking for us. I, I know a, a German lady, sorry, sorry, she's Austrian, um, an Austrian lady at Mass who, um, because of the, the refu recent refugee crisis, the Austria took in an abnormal amount of refugees and she just she just hangs her head and says the, com the country's ruined because of all these Muslims and you've got Germany, you've got France, um, they're trying to come over across the Channel Tunnel to uh, the UK but 
thankfully um because of brexit that might actually stem the tide but you get in all these uh, all the, i think every country in the world's getting um islamified shall we say yes uh but um now that that's uh it, yeah it's 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 all the modern culture. It's all as decadent as decadent could be, and uh, that's the. Did you see, by the way, at some government, government uh, meeting or you know party or something in Germany that there was a drag queen that was invited? <laughs> Did you see that? And she was, you know, Merkel no, had a, a no. smirk on her face, which is the right word, as the drag queen is you, standing behind her. Are you sure that wasn't Merkel? <laughs> yes, yes, smirking Merkel. Uh, the the uh, the uh, and you know he's hobnobbing with all of these German officials, this this person that is dressed up outrageously, and I'm just thinking Germany. I'm thinking the Kaiser, and you know all of the dignity of, of the German state and the, you know, just all of these things that that just click in my mind for for Germany, uh, that this is the state of of the of Germany, that a, a drag queen is invited to some state official celebration. I mean, yeah. it's, just, it's just so bad that you, there's nothing to say about it. You know, it's, it's, uh, my my mother-in-law would have a, uh, a saying, we are living in an age of unadulterated hedonism. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, yes, your mother-in-law, I know who she is, yes. <laughs> she, she is one of the mainstays of the traditional movement. <laughs> Yes. She'll be, she's going to be mortified that we're talking about her on, on air. But but I think oh, your man. wife is the successor of your mother-in-law. She's becoming also the, the, the mainstay of the traditional movement. At least I'm told that. So uh, that she is a, you know, waiting in the wings. She's the princess, so to speak, of this. Oh. I'm told to, this. This to is the, <laughs> and you know, I go all over the world. I hear a lot of things, and uh, so uh, that that she has that reputation. So. That's that's that's. I'll, I'll I'll make sure I tell her that tonight with a Valentine's gift. <laughs> she has a worldwide oh, so reputation. <laughs> swiftly moving on, um, the final topic of the show, um, SSPX. Will they? Won't they? That's the question that we need to <laughs> need to try. We need to try and discern. <laughs> well, talk about odds. I mean, if anyone's taking odds, this would be really the place to do it. Uh, well, we have two dates. You know, one is May thirteenth. The other is July seventh. I think that's the first time we've seen dates. Now that is, I would say, a positive development. And, you know, there are other, other signs that we haven't seen before. So uh, I would say it's, uh, it's uh, a hopeful thing. And, and I'm looking at, I'm talking about it positively because finally that will essentially bury, recognize, and resist. Because they will now recognize and go along, and, which they've been doing anyway for a long time. Uh, but it will bury that Lefebvreist position. Uh, it will the 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 resistance people who are all torn up and divided will carry the torch of it, but I don't think that they have much of a future, and certainly they're not significant. Uh, so I think it will be that we, the state of Acanthus, will emerge as finally the clear answer to modernism, and there won't be this confusion uh, 
that the SSPX has, has sown for years and years and years. <clears throat> and they will not be able to um, sort of take the, the, the uh, play the on again, off again, zigzag uh, position uh, against Rome, as they call it, which is, has fooled so many people for so long because it's, it's uh, the organization has um, uh, taken a hard line one day, a soft line the next, and has, has uh, gone uh, back and forth and has, has uh, attracted some potential hardliners because they occasionally do say uh, hardline type of things. But then that will, uh, that particular myth will uh, disappear, I think. That it'll, it'll become unsustainable. But um, maybe as with the Novus Ordo conservatives, there's so many people who are used to going along with the Pius X society, even though they're hardliners, that uh, this will be just, uh, just another blip for them. But uh, you're correct because it finally will draw a clear line between those who are uh, really resisting Vatican II and those who are not, those who in the practical order have accepted it. The photo, by the way, in your, in your show plan <laughs> is uh, just perfect. It's, it fulfills the analogy that I always, uh, always have made. It, it, for those who, who can, <laughs> cannot see it, I, I don't know where you got it, but it's Bergoglio superimposed on a man dressed up to be married, and with him is uh, the face of Bishop Fele on a woman in a white wedding dress, and they're they're obviously getting up to the altar to get <laughs> married, and it is the perfect analogy, and and I I, I really it's the, the it's really funny, uh, it, it's very very amusing, so I don't know where you got it, but uh, so to to enlighten our listeners, I um I, I can't take credit for that. I, I wish I had the skills to produce something like that. However. Um, that was taken from Novus Ordo Watch, unfortunately. Um, the great, the great thing about that picture is it has a great um, image of Bishop Fillet with a look of glee on his face as he's following Francis down the aisle. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm personally edified that his neckline isn't too plunging. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yes, and at least short sleeves yeah. on. Yes, uh, that's yeah. not bad. Yes, yeah, that's. Uh, I would. Yeah, that's uh, that was more edifying. And he's got the top hat on. He's got the morning uh, outfit on. So Bergoglio. Bergoglio. He like must have the. Yeah. Yes, very traditional. And uh, yes, the, the great top hat, which is that means that it's a morning wedding. So it's going to it's a sign it that will take place in the morning. <laughs> Well, I mean, who only knows we've been waiting for, well, since 1982. That's when the negotiations started with the Vatican, uh, and that's what precipitated 1983, our exit. That would be the, the, the ninxit, the, the, uh, the exit of the nine from the SSPX. Uh, the, uh, that's what precipitated it was the beginning of those negotiations with Ratzinger, which blossomed finally in 1988 with... Archbishop Fever's acceptance of the protocol, uh, and uh, which he rejected the next day, and then of course they went into the consecration of the bishops in 1988, 
And now, after a number of years, in the 1990s, the negotiations started again. So this is really the fruit of, what, 1982, what, 35 years? Is that right? Am I right on that? 35 yeah. years of negotiation, on and off, hot and cold, but nonetheless there. Uh, and we've been waiting all this time. Uh, so... Uh, so it's been a, you know, a, a, we're waiting and waiting. Whether it will happen, we don't know. But it, it seems that uh, there's certainly the most positive signs we've ever had. That's, that's for sure. I think in my preparation for this show, I listened to a, a true, another True Restoration show that was done in 2012 with yourself, Father Chicada. And it was around the time of the 2012 negotiations. And on that show... Um, I, I don't think we need to go into detail here, but everything Father Chicada says in that show is happening again here. And um, I highly advise our listeners to go back and re-listen to that sort of stuff. But I just want to um, briefly talk about, um, to wrap up, is that Ecclesia Day's secretary, Guido Pozzo, um, stated in uh, towards the end of January, we are working on improving the fraternity's legal status. And in the um, announcement, he talked about um, the mini schism of the 1988 consecrations. Now, the Vatican is referring to the 1988 consecrations as schismatic. Um, does that mean the Vatican's always seen the Lefebvreists, as they refer to the SSPX, as schismatic? No, it's, 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 it's uh, Alice in Wonderland. Uh, the, with those people, uh, at any given point, a, a word means whatever they say it means. So they can say they're schismatic at one point and say they're not really schismatic at another. So it's, it's the uh, Alice in Wonderland term. It's whatever you need so, at the time. Yeah. Whatever weapon is to hand. John Paul II in his in Ecclesia Dei was quite clear about their going into schism, though. That that yeah. uh, I mean that that's for sure. But the way they have treated them since that time has not been consistent. I mean, if you were to call up the diocese and say, "Who are these people?" They would say they're schismatics. You can't go. You see, that's the yeah. response you would get. But if you were to approach the Vatican, they would say, "Well, you know, they're in partial communion, and you know, you would get some sort of." mishmash and gobbledygook back uh, and so yeah it's whatever you need at the time whatever is convenient mm -hmm. uh, whatever is the best thing you know whatever the temperature in rome is or the you know the whoever you're talking to it doesn't matter okay well thank you my lord and father for um, being on my first uh, francis watch um but however Francis Watch is not complete without a update from your excellency and uh, Father Chicada. So, my lord, um, you just recently come back from Australia. How was how was your trip to Australia? It was very good. Uh, I really didn't know what to expect. Uh, uh, the uh, people there are very very fervent. They're they're very firm in all the right ideas that that we have, uh, and uh, you know they're firm against uh, Bergoglio. They are sedevacantists. Uh, the people that I met, were, many of them were from SSPX and felt very burned by SSPX. 
They, they read, they listen, they are very, very attentive. I never saw a group that was so attentive to the truth and, and who, who really desired to know the truth. Uh, I, I was very impressed by that uh, in Australia. I, you know, I've been nearly everywhere, uh, and uh, I never saw that uh, in any group. Uh, and uh, they, uh, they came out, uh, I had about 50 people at my conference in, in Melbourne and about 40 in Brisbane. I'm saying it the Australian way. The real way to pronounce that is Brisbane, okay, just so you know. <laughs> That's the correct way. And, and I said it that way in Australia, I said in Brisbane, and I said, you have to pronounce that correctly. Uh, the, uh, so, but Brisbane, as they say, and uh, so, uh, which I thought was good given the fact that there's only 20 some million people in that whole country. And probably only 25% of them are Catholics. So I thought those were good numbers and they only get mass once a month in, in Brisbane and in Melbourne. Uh, they only get mass once a month, uh, so uh, there's only one state of Acanthus priest that's circulating in that whole continent, which is the size of the United States of America. And, and you know, so that's, uh, I, I admire them very much, and Australia is a very nice place. Uh, I, I, there are no, I didn't, at least, I didn't see any, but I'm going to say there are no creeps in Australia. We, we have creeps in this country. When I go to Europe, I see creeps, and I'm sure you know what I mean. It's just creepy, horrible people. You don't see them in Australia. People are hardworking. They seem decent. They, they, there seems to be no stealing whatsoever. People are not concerned about locking things up. or they, 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 they're just, it, It's a very pleasant place in that sense. Uh, geographically, it's very appealing. A lot of hills, uh, beautiful trees, trees like you've never seen before. And then the birds of paradise are everywhere. Birds that you would spend $1,000 on to have in this country are flying around like crows and sparrows in, in Australia. These beautifully plumed birds, parrots and everything. Uh, which impressed me a lot. I mean, just as a, as, you know, I couldn't believe it. Uh, and uh, you can get them to talk and you know, all the things that you pay a lot of money for in this country. Uh, and uh, so I, I was, yes, very, the only problem with Australia is that it's too far away. It needs to be moved to about, you know, like a three hour flight maybe out of Los Angeles and not the, the 15 hours. It needs to be moved. That's the only thing that's wrong with Australia. So uh, that flight to Australia is, is so long and, and there's nothing, as I was saying, when you cross the Atlantic, you occasionally see a ship or the lights of a ship, something that tells you that there's something outside the plane and the darkness of the plane. You might see Nova Scotia, you might see the lights of Ireland, something like that. There's nothing absolutely nothing between <laughs> it's just darkness it's like the dark side of the moon between los angeles and sydney all of a sudden australia appears and that's it and so you get this feeling that there's like a quarter inch of titanium between you and the atlantic ocean excuse me pacific ocean and that you know you'll never you will never be found if anything goes wrong in this plane you will ne they will never find you there's not a single light bulb that burns on any one of those islands in the Pacific Ocean. They're all asleep and they don't have any lights on. 
is nothing that you see. That, that was, a, you know, it was kind of a scary thing. You know, you, you, I'm so used to it, transatlantic that you see something anyway. You might see Greenland or something, <laughs> but uh, there's, there's just nothing there. So uh, I was impressed by that. But th those are little things. But the 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 um, uh, the trip was very good. Unfortunately, I came back with a horrible cold, and I still have it. I'm seeing the doctor tomorrow. Uh, so it's been a month since I've been back. So. Uh, uh, but I got through this show without coughing too much. I was concerned about that. So, And Father, how are things with you and your parish in Cincinnati? Going very well. Um, I had, um, it's been three months since my operation, and uh, I'm actually recovering quite nicely, uh, taking on more and more activities. A couple of, uh, about two weeks ago, I said uh, public mass for the first time because I did have a little difficulty uh, standing up for some reason. And uh, this past Sunday, I was able to carry off, uh, you know, the full Sunday that uh, uh, I did before my illness, uh, offering Mass, singing at the High Mass, uh, uh, counseling people, singing for Vespers, etc. So uh, back to normal, uh, uh, from the point of view of the parish, I planned a uh, visit down to the seminary, in uh, early March, uh, I'm not was not teaching down there this year. That's it uh, worked out actually well with my illness because the the way the cycle of courses went, uh, I wasn't really particularly needed for this year. But I'll go down and, and visit the seminary, be there for the the feast of uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas. Um, other things that are going on here are um, webcasts. Uh, uh, program is, is uh, uh, very well. We have uh, people, uh, we have well into the 300s now in terms of uh, regular viewers for uh, viewing the live webcast masses that we have on, on Sundays and uh, during the week for the school mass. So uh, that's going very well. And um, uh, in fact, uh, I am uh, when I end this program, I am uh, going to go on to um, work on another project here, which is uh, I'm setting up uh, more or less a, a permanent uh, a little studio for making uh, uh, videos in uh, the basement of the rectory. It's something that uh, I've thought of on and off over the years of the different videos uh, that I've made in different parts of the church building. So someone is, is uh, awaiting me now who is uh, going to help me uh, bit by bit get the things together that I need to set this up. So that should be uh, a good project. And I plan on um, making a, a series of, of uh, uh, short films on different topics of interest to traditional Catholics, so we'll see how that uh, we'll see how that works out. So, in fact, things are uh, going very well. Thank you, my Lord Father, for another glorious episode of Francis Watch. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Thank you for listening to Francis Watch. If you have any questions about anything you've heard on today's episode, please email questions at truerestoration.org. We want to remind you that Francis Watch is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to copyright at truerestoration.org. All of us here at member-supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful and beneficial to you and your faith. 
In return, please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Daniel Fitton. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.